Let's uh, get ready to read the word of the Lord this morning. Today is a uh, sort of, we've been on the pause button in David's life, Lessons in the Life of David, Poet Warrior King for several months. We're going back now for round two. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention this in the first service. If any of your TV watchers, I don't remember if it's either Tuesday night or Wednesday night, but there's a new ABC series called Of Prophets and Kings, which is pretty cool. Say it again. Tuesday? Tuesday? Who said Tuesday? Okay, great. Yeah, I think it's like 9 o'clock. I've been uh, DVRing it so I can watch that. Uh, it's ABC, whatever the ABC network is that you have on your uh, perspective cable or whatever you have, affiliate dish network or DirecTV, whatever. Uh, today is the first in this second section of Lessons in the Life of David. It's called The Old Has Gone, The New Has Come. Look at somebody tell them right now, say, The Old Has Gone, The New Has Come. Our text is the same that we used in our first series. It's found in Psalm 78. So as they pull that up this morning, would you heartily read it with me, please? Here we go. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Bow our hearts together to this morning for word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing, awesome God. Your love is indescribable. Lord, your presence today touches us in our deepest places. Thank you so much, Father, for a, a new generation that is arising already with the praise of God in their hearts and on their mouths. God, thank you today for Sydney and just the favor of the Lord that's resting on her life. And Lord, for these young adults that are in the congregation today, these teenagers that are here that are, that are seeing Sydney and Chloe and Ben uh, and various ones in this church uh, arise in a place of leadership. God, we're so grateful uh, to, to, to be about the business of making disciples that can extend your kingdom. Lord, to look for anointing in people's lives and give them an opportunity for that to grow. God, we thank you for leaders that are here that you're raising up, young men and women in the next generation. Thank you, Lord, for our elder saints who are here to pray for us and to give us wisdom and advise us and encourage us and strengthen us in the Lord. God, I thank you for multiple generations in this house, and we give you praise for that. Open our hearts today, Holy Spirit, to understand what you're saying. Let us be people of the Word whose hearts, like the soil, has been dug deep so that the seed can go down and bring fruit. God, I need you today and I more than I ever have before. Apart from you, I know that I'm nothing, but I thank you, Lord, with you, with the Holy Spirit, I can do whatever you've called me to do and be in Jesus' name. Let that awareness penetrate every heart in this room. It's in your magnificent, strong name that we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I'm excited about picking up this series again. Uh, there is so much content um, I've, I've watched two of the episodes so far of the TV show that I mentioned of Prophets and Kings and because they're trying to put it into a screenplay they've done a little bit of condensing and sort of combined a couple of things sometimes that uh, otherwise would have been maybe several chapters apart in the life of Saul or in David's involvement. Uh, but I'm excited that that's on. That obviously, you know, was not planned. We had already planned to do this series at this time, and then all of a sudden I found out this new thing has kicked in. So it's interesting to read through the Word and then see how they're depicting it. I think it's really a response in our culture because Hollywood is finally awakened to see that there's a whole segment 
uh, of believers, Christians, uh, with the Son of God movie and the whole uh, uh, Mark Burnett. He's the uh, husband of Roma Downey Jr. Uh, that they, you know, he's the guy who produces Amazing Race and Survivor and all these reality TV shows. They filmed and did the Bible that was on the, I believe it was the History Channel or one of those one of those other cable networks. And then did the Son of God uh, with Diogo Morgado was the guy who was really just too pretty to be Jesus. If you remember, if you saw the film, um, um, and a lot of these really good uh, movies that are about biblical themes. And so I, I think that has just finally awakened them to see, with the crazy, outrageous success of God's Not Dead, my dear friend who's preached in this pulpit, Rice Brooks, uh, wrote the book that inspired that. He is the apologist behind that, and. Uh, and it was so successful, they're doing a God's Not Dead too. I hope that it is, it is successful as one was. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of great things that are happening, and I believe in the culture, in spite of how awful the presidential race is looking these days. Uh, and God is still on the throne. How many of you know in spite of, in spite of the clowns that we're listening to uh, on both sides? Anyway, um, leave that alone. Uh, you, you pray in an election year. You pray and you hear from God. Um, I, I will not recommend a party or a candidate or endorse anybody because I believe the gospel should be bigger than that uh, because when we do that uh, we immediately cut off whichever side we take we cut off and offend the others that could hear the gospel and I believe the church is supposed to do Billy Graham was criticized through all those years when he would go and pray with Republicans and the next administration pray with Democrats and I believe that's what the church is supposed to do we're supposed to arise into a place of spiritual leadership and guidance and to prophetically speak into and encourage and help people to see the way, the truth, and the life and not just be so short-minded or narrow-minded that we think that it has to be one particular group or party. And I just want to tell you, there are people who love Jesus on both sides of the aisle. Whether you think that or not, there are. And, and the gospel has to be bigger than one particular political ideology. And so today, how does that relate to what we're talking about? Well, we've got a king. We've got a king who's in place and um, it's interesting because God has led Egypt as their king. He administered judgment and justice through a whole period called the Judges, uh, a, book, a book that's named after that, a number of different people, uh, Samson and Gideon and Ehud and uh, Eglon, and Eglon was the king that got killed, um, Othniel, uh, a woman by the name of Deborah who was a judge. So ladies, you have a place. Um, and then all of a sudden something changes and God begins to administer His government through the prophetic. And Samuel comes on the scene. And through his administration, the people start to desire to be like the other nations. They cry out to God for God to give them a king. They wanted to be like the other nations of the world around them. And uh, basically Samuel was disappointed and God's heart was broken because his desire was to lead the people and be the king of the nation of Israel. And so God says, give them what they want. And how many of you know, uh, sometimes if God gave us every time we ask for something what we wanted, it wouldn't necessarily be a blessing, wouldn't it? Would it? Okay. Uh, and that's one time of several when the majority speaks. By the time every time you see majority govern in the Bible, it's always a disaster. Numbers 13, you've got 10 spies who outvote two. God told the children of Israel, go into Egypt and spy the land because I'm going to give it to you. 
And instead of going in faith with eyes to see what God was going to accomplish through them, they went and ran a feasibility study and came back and said, we're not able because we're grasshoppers in the eyes of giants that are in that land. Yeah, it's a land flowing of milk and honey, but we're not able. And God said, well, I knew that. I didn't tell you to go in and you to do it. I told you I was going to do it. But now because of your lack of faith, for every one day that you spied out the land, you will wander one year in the wilderness for one day that you spied. And 40 years God waited for a generation of unbelief to die so He could raise up another generation that would walk in faith. Somebody say amen. So 10 outvoted 2. The majority is screaming, give us a king, give us a king like the other nations. And God tells Samuel, go ahead and give them what they want. And when they get it, they're not going to be pleased. And so God raises up a young man who is handsome and fit. He's, the scripture describes him as one of the most handsome men in all of Israel. He would, he would have been on the, the, the cover of Muscle and Fitness Israel or let's see GQ, <laughs> Hebrew GQ, whatever, I don't know. Um, but he was good looking. He was tall. The scripture says he was head and shoulders over the rest of the men of Israel. So he had all the leadership traits on the outside. But his character inside had never been tested. He steps into a place of leadership quickly and uh, it, we can see that it quickly begins to go to his head because he is not at all concerned about the commands of the Lord that are coming through the mouth of God's prophet Samuel. And Saul disobeys. And as we wrapped up that series of eight messages about David, we stopped in 1 Samuel 30 where David had gone down to Ziklag and all of the, the wives of the men of his mighty men had been kidnapped along with their children and all of their stuff. The camp had been raided and been burned to the ground and they come back and there's nothing left and all of the men are so bitter in soul, the Bible says, that they start whispering among themselves and talking about stoning David. In a classic passage in 1 Samuel 30, the Bible says, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. How many of you know when nobody else around you will encourage you, you have the ability, yea, not only the ability, but you have the responsibility to stand up and begin to encourage yourself in the Lord your God. That means you might have to go back and rehearse a little bit and remind yourself about, look what the Lord has done in that situation in my life and He brought me through that crisis and He spoke peace to that storm and before you know it, you've got your preach on and you've got some energy and you're ready to stand up and lead when at once, when at once, when you heard they were talking about stoning you, it had sucked the life out of you and you didn't think you had any ability whatsoever left to lead that band of rowdy men. But when David got in the presence of God, he got encouraged and he encouraged himself. And we ended the series on that high note. And I deliberately waited till we started the series again with this transitional message because Saul dies. It's sad. And I would ask the question this morning, there is, there is one thing that I want to hit before we jump into this message and I ask the question, this is the one thing I want to communicate through this message today. Humility comes before honor. Everybody say, humility comes before honor. It, there is always a godly season of preparation before there is a season of revelation, of showing you to the world or to the people of God. There's always a season of trying and proving and preparation of learning to serve before you lead, of learning to give before you receive, of learning to sow before you reap, of learning to get down under before you're raised up over. 
There's always for honor. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's, it's Proverbs 15. It says it this way. I believe it's 1522 if I'm quoting the exact street and address right. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and before honor is humility. David is unlike Saul because he is going to actually have the example from a king who has lost the favor of God and lost the presence of God for about 13 years. It's discovered that when David is 16 after the whole Goliath killing incident that David also has the ability to play the harp with an anointing. He's literally... Now, Sydney up here was a little younger than David. She's about 12. David is about 16, 17 years old. And for 13 years... He will soothe the fevered brow and the deranged madness of a king in whom the Spirit of God has been removed. And the Bible says a troubling spirit, an evil spirit from the Lord was sent to trouble Saul because of his disobedience to God. And David, like us, learns not only the positive example of what he should do to be a future good king because he's been visited in his home by the prophet the prophets brought a horn of oil and poured it over David's head as a young man and he's bowing before the prophet of God and he's on his, on his knees on the ground and the prophet is speaking words over him that he's shaking his head and the oil is dripping off of his long hair and he's going, am I really hearing what I think I'm hearing? Behold the Lord's anointed. Is he really saying that I'm going to be the next king? So David knew that he had to hide that secret in his heart because there's no king on the throne that's ever going to allow a newly ordained anointed king to stay alive. If you'll remember when the wise men, the magi, visited Herod and they said, we've come to serve and worship the king of the Jews, Herod's question was, now wait a minute, I am the king of the Jews. And you know what happens? He tries to find out exactly when they saw the star and so based on the fact that they'd seen the star two years prior and they'd been traveling... He had all the little boy babies killed in Bethlehem, Ramah. Of course, by that point, Jesus was already gone. He was already a little kid toddling around in the house in Nazareth at that point. And so the whole, the whole issue is, is that David now has received the anointing of the Lord on his life and, and he has the responsibility of not only learning by positive example what it, it, what it means to be a good king, but he's going to learn by negative example what he shouldn't do in order to not be a bad king. How many of you know none of us has the privilege of only being mentored by or being led by people who only do it right all the time? We, everybody look at your neighbor and say, you're human. I am too. Say it, come on. And that means that every parent in the room, if you are a godly parent, has had to at some point, don't shout me down, but you've had to at some point look at your children and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, I was wrong. You know what, if you want to raise good kids and you don't ever say that, you better learn how to say that because they know when we're wrong. And if we don't have the ability to show them what real repentance means when we miss it, if we've offended them or we've hurt them or we were angry too quickly or we, we came too quickly to a conclusion that wasn't well-founded in reality or substantiated by reasoning or logic or fact and then we're accusing them or we're, expect, or we're looking, talking down to them or any of these things and we can't back up and go, I'm sorry I was wrong. You're a gift from God in my life. Then guess what? We're going to raise kids who can never say they're sorry when they miss it either. They're going to follow our example. 
They're not going to do what we say. They're going to do what they see us do. Somebody say amen. amen. And so David is learning by positive and by negative example, learning what not to do when he becomes king. And he's learning that right in the house of Saul. He's building friendships and relationships and and it gets so bad with Saul trying to pin him to the wall because he sees that the anointing and the favor of God is on David's life. And he threatens David's life and David forgives him and he comes back and Saul says, I love you, son, please forgive me. And David comes back and he tries again because he loves Saul and he respects the office that Saul is in. Even though Saul is crazy, he respects the kingship that he holds. He respects and loves and reveres and honors the office. He honors the Lord's anointed even though Saul is doing some crazy things, he has received the prophetic word of the prophet. He's received the word of the Lord that says, Behold the Lord's anointed. And he's had the oil poured over him. And so David refuses time after time when he has an opportunity to actually avenge his own life. Saul's tried to kill him numerous times and David's hiding out in caves. Jonathan becomes a great friend of his. He makes sure he gets fed. He warns him of his dad's crazy strategies. David finds a hiding place in Adullam and the mighty men begin to come to him, all those that are in debt and distress and discontented. And God begins to build some mighty men out of a motley crew. And Running in and out of those caves, you will remember the story when, when, when Saul goes back in a cave looking for David and he's just going in to take care of business. It's a nature call. He's going to use the bathroom. Forgive me, but this is exactly what Saul is doing. And David and some of his men are hidden back in the back of the cave trying to keep from literally laughing out loud because they see Saul doing his business. And David is so close to him that he takes his sharp short sword, this little short dagger, less than probably 12 to 18 inches, and he pulls it out of the sheath and he slits off a little piece of Saul's robe. Saul leaves the cave where he was using the bathroom. David comes out knowing all the intricacies and the passageways in those caves and caverns. He stands on the, the brow of another cliff opposing where Saul had his encampment and he shouts to him and he said, I am not against you. I am not trying to hurt you. This is a piece of your robe and the Lord delivered you into my hand. You persistently try to kill me and my man wanted me to kill you but I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And if God takes you out, God will do it and it won't be because I did it. David honored God. David honored God's anointed in the very same kind of way. Waiting, saying that if this is supposed to be mine in time, if God's given it, no man can take it away from me. And if God hasn't given it, there's not a man that can wrestle it out of the hands of God. Somebody say amen. Now, this is what I want you to see this morning. Two things. We've got two sections here. Principles, first of all, from the life and the death of Saul. 1 Samuel 31 gives the gory details. They're up on Mount Gilboa. Saul and his three beautiful sons, Jonathan and the other two primary sons that are heirs to the throne. First three sons, his first three born in his family, all die together in a battle against the Philistines. This had been a perennial, it's like a weed that springs up every time in your, your flower bed every year. There was a perennial battle with the Philistines. Scripture says, at the spring is the time when kings go out to war. Well, the Philistines got a little bit antsy and here they come raiding. They start stealing from the encampments and the places where the Israelites live. And Saul 
got tired of it. And so he gathers together and garners a host of the Israelites to be an army that follows him. And he leads them in victory after victory after victory, driving back the Philistines, never totally killing them, but driving them back, holding them back. And the favor of God had been on him over and over and over and over until he one day hears some of the young maidens of Israel singing that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And at that time, that really wasn't even accurate. Saul had slain thousands and David had slain one. It was a giant. The giant from Gath, the Philistine champion. But they were just saying that he was so mighty and great and that they were putting David in a category over Saul and jealousy began to reign in the heart of Saul. And so my question this morning is, how can someone start out so great and then finish with such lack, finish in such failure? How can someone start out with such favor, handsome, good-looking, built, influence, favor, leadership on his life? Everything he does is right and the favor of God is blessing and then all of a sudden something dramatically changes and it's just like it's a downhill battle and fight and he's digging around through the rocks looking for whoever is going to be his successor. Why? Because Samuel the prophet of God had spoken the judgment of the Lord because of Saul's disobedience. He said, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you and your house and I'm going to put it into the hand of a faithful man. Saul knew that it was over with then. How many of you know when God opens a door, no man can shut it? And when God closes the door, no man can open it. Saul was trying his best to disprove that and to wrestle from the hands of God his dynasty so that his sons could reign after him. Look with me this morning. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13 and 14. Two verses. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium. Everybody say a psychic. 1-900-PSYCHIC, okay? Horoscope, whatever. He consulted a medium seeking guidance. Verse 14, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. He sought guidance, but he didn't seek God's guidance, okay? Therefore, the Lord put him to death. The New Living Translation says the Lord killed him. Those are hard words. The Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, when you read 1 Samuel 31, the gory details are there because the battle increases into a level of intensity and the archers of the Philistines were skilled men with bow and arrow. And one actually got his aim in and penetrated between the armor that was on King Saul and probably struck his liver or maybe penetrated one of the lungs He was hit and it was a mortal wound and he knew it, but he wasn't dead yet. And so he asks his armor bearer with him. The king said, please take your sword, take my sword and end my life because if you don't, I'm done. It's over with. This is a mortal wound. I'm not going to live but just a little while longer. And if I'm alive, when the Philistine hosts find me, they will take me and do unspeakable things to me before their army They will make sport of me and they will mock the God of Israel. And the armor bearer loved Saul and he loved, he had respect for the the position that he held as the anointed of the Lord. And he said, I'm sorry, king, I can't do it. I won't do it. And so Saul hears him knowing that he's speaking with resolution in his voice. Saul puts his sword on the ground and falls on the sword himself, penetrating the whole cavity of his 
thorax and abdomen and his body and literally kills him. He commits suicide on the spot because had the Philistines got a hold of him, they would have done all kinds of grotesque things in the name of making fun of the king of Israel. And the scripture gives us the recording of this in uh, both 1 Samuel 31 and also in, in, in Chronicles and Kings as well. And it tells us that Saul committed suicide. didn't use the word suicide, but he took his own life, fell on his sword. His armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. Once he knew that Saul was dead, he did the same thing because the armor bearer is responsible for the life of the king. And if the king gets killed, then you're, you're gone. You're done because it's your job. He is the secret service of the king. He is supposed to take the bullet for the president. And he wouldn't kill a wounded president. He wouldn't kill the wounded king. The king took his own life because of the battle in which he was leading and fighting, literally as a general in the army himself. And then the armor bearer took his life. And so that's the story that we see happening and the death of a man who began so wonderfully. I believe that it's the desire of God that we start well, but that we finish well what we start. I believe the word of the Lord gives us the principles in order to start the race, run the race, and finish the race. I believe that there are warnings there that of things that can lure us off the path and can disqualify us from running the race. I believe that there are things that can hinder our lives that can make us lose our influence. Now, I want you to see under this group of four things, quickly, I'm going to hit them. Do not confuse destiny and legacy with heaven. I do not believe that when Saul and his beautiful sons died that they went to hell. I don't believe Saul died and went to hell because he had disobeyed God. Saul was a man of the covenant. He was covered by the blood. He was born into a, a, the, the tribe of Benjamin. He, he, was, he, was, he was blessed by the seed of Abraham. He, he was already in the covenant. Heaven was his home. And, and sometimes today uh, we, we confuse the issue of birthright and inheritance and we, we confuse this issue of losing my place and recognizing that once I am a believer, let me just tell you, I unashamedly believe in the doctrine, the New Testament doctrine of eternal security. I believe if you're saved and you got eternal life, you don't lose eternal life. If you can lose it, it was temporary life. It wasn't eternal life. If He saved you, if He's marked you, if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you've been, you've, been, you've been marked with the Holy Spirit, then there's something on your life that if you miss it, God may take you out in order to remove you because you've messed up your destiny and your legacy, but heaven is still your home. You still have a birthright, but you may not have much of an inheritance or a reward. But thank God you're saved as by fire, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't believe Saul lost his salvation. I believe Saul lost his destiny. I believe he lost his legacy. I believe he lost the opportunity to be able to hand the government down to his son and into his son's son and into his son's son's son. What am I saying to you? Let me tell you, you can know right now that if you die in this moment, you'll go to heaven, but you can make a decision tomorrow that'll jack up and mess up your whole family and put a, put a curse of, of rebellion and destruction in your life that can last for generations until Somebody stands up and breaks it. When we righteously choose to walk with God and we live the life that is an example to our children and to our children's children, there is a, a blessing on the obedience 
of the word of the Lord. When, when I obey God, God will bless me. He, he, he will bless my children by seeing me walking in the blessing of God because of obedience to God's word and God's law. When I break it, there are implications. I will reap a crop. Can I get forgiveness? Yes. Am I going to heaven? Absolutely. But I'm still going to see implications right now temporarily in this life that I may mess up. I can lose my marriage. I can alienate my children. Still going to heaven. I can get forgiveness. But I can lose every bit of influence that I may have worked 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years for in my life because I give in in a moment of weakness to some stupid temptation that comes and stares me in the face. Come on, am I helping somebody in this room this morning? David saw what happens in the life of a king who disobeyed the prophet of God. And God spoke through Samuel telling Saul in 1 Kings, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want you to kill all the Amalekites. I want you to kill Agag because Agag had done and ordered as an evil king a heinous thing toward the women of Israel. He would... He would send his men to fight against the men of Israel, but it was not just true warfare with other warriors. He would raid the cities and the villages, and he would literally charge his men in his Amalekite army to take their swords and cut from the bellies of pregnant women the babies they were carrying. And God rose up in judgment with that, and through the prophet Samuel he said, I want you to kill every one of them. Don't leave any life alive. Take their children Kill the king, kill the sheep, kill the cattle. I want, it to, I want you to burn it down. God spoke through Samuel and Saul decided, hey, we'll kill the men in the army, but we'll save Agag. We'll save the old king. We can trot him around and make fun of him in front of our people. And by the way, save those sheep. We can offer them as a sacrifice to God. And so Samuel comes walking into the palace to Saul's throne room and Samuel asks a very prophetic question. What is this? bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears. Saul says, oh, well, we saved sacrifice for the Lord because we wanted to bless God with the spoils of the battle that we had with the Amalekites. And what is this wretched king over here that I see alive? I told you to cut his head off. And one of the most amazing stories of heroism that I see in the Old Testament is an old gray-haired prophet took a sword and walked over there and hacked off the head of Agag. And he said, because of all the babies that you've stolen from the wombs of the women of Israel. And he cut Agag's head off in the presence of Saul. People were scared of Samuel. He was a prophet of God you didn't mess with. And if you're watching of prophets and kings, they're probably, even though it's extra biblical, it's not found in the record, they probably, some of Saul's sons probably did try to have Samuel killed. But how many know God always takes care of his anointed? Somebody look at your neighbor. If you're the anointed of the Lord, God's got you covered. There's favor on your life. People can try to take you down, cut you off at your legs, maybe not kill you, but maybe try to destroy your influence. And God has a way of boomeranging that mess back on them. He's going to take care of his own. Saul disobeyed. And this is that passage where the Samuel the prophet says, you know what, obedience is better than sacrifice. We do this mess all the time. We, we, we always think, you know, if, if, uh, if I can just, uh, I, I'm not necessarily going to obey what God's called me to do, but I'll put a big check in the offering at the end of the year and that should make up for it. How many of you know God's not interested in sacrifice? He wants your obedience. Well, I'll go do something really big for God. I'll do a big mission trip. 
when the simplicity of it is he's asked you to obey him in a little area that you didn't want to give up or didn't want, to, didn't want the Lord to touch. And the scripture says obedience is better than sacrifice. That's the word of the Lord to us. And because, Paul, because Saul disobeys, the judgment of God comes on his life. David loved Jonathan. Jonathan is conflicted because he is so tied naturally to his family and his father, even though Jonathan has the prophetic ability, the foresight to see that the anointing of God is on David and God's going to do a new thing. Saul is the old that's gone. David is the new that's coming. This is even when Saul was still alive. Jonathan had spoken the words to David and he said, I know that you're the Lord's anointed and you're going to be Israel's next king. Now think about how powerful this is by a young man whose own father is the current king. He's the firstborn and the first in line. He knows that by the divine right of kings, he should be the next king. But he's so in love with God and, and God's word and his kingdom and he can see anointing. He can see it resting, the favor of God sitting and resting on David, just like you can see the anointing resting on Sidney's life and to lead us into the presence of God. It wasn't, I wasn't just thankful that she could sing and stay in key on tune, but oh my goodness, here comes the presence of God into this room from this little 12-year-old girl leading us and letting the praise of God come off her lips. She is the Lord's anointed. Now, David could, Jonathan could see it, but he never could leave and break with his dad. David would always go back to the stronghold somewhere. Jonathan would send him with provisions and food, but Jonathan would always go back to the palace. David's sleeping on a rock. And Jonathan's sleeping on a soft bed in the palace of the king. And because he never could break rank, sometimes there are things, there are ties that hold us, even though we see God calling us into something new. But something old holds us so deeply that we're never able to break with that. And guess what? When that whole thing dies, we die with it because we couldn't break with it. That's the sad state for Jonathan. The spear that was aimed at David. How many times did Saul in his madness and his deranged mindset take out a spear and try to pin David to the wall to kill him because of his jealousy, because of the anointing of God on David's life? And isn't it interesting that in death, the very spear that was aimed for David, David's whole life, ends up in the sight of Saul and takes Saul out and kills him finally. I mean, you know, when, when you mean evil for somebody else that the Lord has favor on, you better be careful because God will turn that mess back around on you and you'll inherit the very thing you've sown yourself. Don't shout me down now. 1 Samuel 15, David didn't kill Agag and he let all the kids live. Now literally, in Samuel 15 and Samuel 30, by the time we move through that, it's probably been a good 15 years. So we've got a three or four year old Amalekite boy that's running around who has hatred in his heart for the Israelites and he's the one who comes running up on the day of the battle. It says an Amalekite. Those are the ones that Saul was supposed to take out. Now, look at my point here in your notes. Saul's disobedience and the one who dishonored him. Because Saul didn't kill all those Amalekite children, one of them grew up and was the one on the scene of the battlefield that robbed him of his crown and of his armlet that identified him as the king and the general of the Israelite army and comes running with them to David. Okay, now just stay with me right there. Don't run off. Jump down with me to verse to the second thing that I want to bring this morning. Everybody say David's response. Say David's response was everything. Here we go. Look at this. 
2 Samuel 1, 14 through 16, three verses. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put on, out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, what, what are you saying, Pastor Michael? I'm, I'm, I'm not making the connection here. Well, this is, this is where I want to draw the connection. In 2 Samuel, the book opens up, and in chapter 1, we read, verse 1, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, if David's been there two days, what's the next day coming? What, what is it? What, everybody say third. Everybody say the third day. Now, in light of what we just celebrated last Sunday, who got up out of the ground on the third day? Okay, on the third day, it brought the, the, the real final news that the old was gone and the new has come. Sin debt had been paid. Power of sin had been broken. Death, we'd gotten victory over it, over all the curse, like we already preached last Sunday. Therefore, every time you see in the Bible where it says on the third day, there's always an implication of resurrection on three days. The scripture says in Hosea, it says those who... Know the Lord will follow on to know Him. And He says, after two days I will raise you up and three days you will live in my sight. So it's a picture literally of God renewing and God changing and God transforming not just a, a people or a nation, but it's a picture also of Jesus individually in terms of being raised up and conquering death. And this is what we see here. David had been in Ziklag two days recovering. He had recovered all. David had gotten back to the camp and all the wives and the children and all their treasures and all their stuff had been stolen and, and the tents had been burned to the ground. And the men start talking about stoning David and David doesn't go get a medium like Saul did or consult a seer or somebody who peeps or mutters as the Bible says. He didn't call 1-900-PSYCHIC or read his horoscope or look at his tea leaves. No, he got on his knees and prayed to the God of Israel. Come on, somebody. He, he inquired of the Lord. He sought the Lord for guidance. And the God spoke to him and he says, David says, should I pursue? And the Lord says, I want you to pursue and you're going to recover all. Now let me tell you who that's a picture of. It's not just David going after the wives of all of his mighty men and all their stuff, but it's Jesus who went down into hell and he recovered everything that had been stolen by the enemy for your life. He everybody look at your neighbor and say, he recovered everything. That's Jesus who marched into the enemy's camp and said, I'll take those keys of death and Hades. It's mine now. And Jesus went and recovered all, everything in your life and in mine. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Come on. And I want you to see this. The Amalekite young man runs up here and he gives them all this information. It says, David asks him who he is, and he says, I'm an Amalekite. Remember, that's the, that's the group that Saul was supposed to kill. And David took hold of his clothes in verse 11, and he tore them. So did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And our text we just read, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? He said, I am the son of a sojourner and Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand of the Lord's anointed, to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him and struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth is testified, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, what I want to say to you right now is to remind you of how David always handled his problem with Saul. Numerous opportunities he had to take the sword and kill a crazy man who was trying to kill him. You know, we could go into a court of law probably in the United States of America. Police investigate the case. We come in and it's adjudicated by a judge and jury. And anybody who made numerous attempts to try to kill me and my life is on the line, anytime my life is in danger, I have the right to self-defense. And I believe in that. I think it's a biblical principle that, that we should protect ourselves and our homes. But there was something that God graced David to do to always escape the edge of the spear and not retaliate against God's anointed because he knew that even though Saul was not himself and he was a madman and deranged and crazy, he knew he still that the oil of God had still touched his skin. And the king, the, the, the prophet had said, Behold, the Lord's anointed. And David was so fearful of doing something to hurt God's anointed because the Bible says in Psalm 105 verse 15, Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. 1 Chronicles 16.22 says the exact same thing again. It said God avenged kings when they didn't treat the people properly He's, he, because he warned the people, I'm telling you, don't touch the anointed of the Lord and do my prophets no harm. David always was careful to handle the anointing of the Lord properly with right respect, with right honor. He was determined knowing that he can't live and abide by a crazy man who's trying to kill him so he got away from him because he didn't want to have to avenge himself in self-defense to keep himself alive by killing the man that God had anointed. Now I want to say this to you. I'm going to say this in an, an attempt to just teach the word. I'm not going to apologize for what the Word says, but I also want to just say as a disclaimer, I'm not going after anybody when I say this. I'm not trying to correct any situation in the church at all. This is the beauty of preaching through the Bible. You can speak to things that if you just randomly do it one Sunday, folks thinks he got somebody lined up in his crosshairs he's aiming that shotgun at or that rifle at. I'm not aiming at anybody this morning. God is my witness. He knows my heart. I want to say to you that some of you have come from church backgrounds where you at least once a month heard the pastor get up and preach Psalm 105.15 or 1 Chronicles 16.22, Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. And it put the congregation in a place where they were manipulated into fear that if they questioned anything that the preacher was doing, they were afraid the judgment of God was going to come on them. It's quiet in here right now. Some of you have been in churches that it's been very heavy-handed, very power-hungry, pastor everything, pastor making all the decisions, nobody questioned him, he has absolute authority. It's outrageous. That's not even biblical. It's not godly. Let me just tell you, those of you, some of you have been with me for over 20 years, you have never not one time heard me get up in this pulpit and hang that over your head and tell you, you better not touch because I'm the Lord's anointed. Don't touch me and don't do your prophets any harm. I've never manipulated because I don't think anybody is beyond asking a question. I think anybody in any place of leadership ought to be accountable. I think there ought to be an openness. Why did you make that decision like that? And it shouldn't be made by himself. 
should be with a group of brothers and men that are around him. And I'm thankful that we have shepherds and team leaders here and brothers not only inside this house but those outside of the house that, I, that speak into my life and that I'm accountable to. And that if I go goofy that people would come in here and help you hold this church together and if necessary, remove me if I needed to be removed and, and, and hold it together until God raised up and signified who the Lord's anointed would be in this place. I don't apologize though for what the Word says. The Word does say, don't touch my anointed and do my prophets no harm. Because I have never preached that, sometimes among some folks... And it's been over the years. There's nobody right now. So let me just hear, hear me out as I, as I talk. Is it, can I be a, a pastor this morning and talk to you a little bit? Come on. Because some of you have been in places in the past where that was so emphasized and you were afraid to even ask a question. And that's not godly because that's intimidation and it's manipulation. And that's a work of the flesh and a work of the devil. You ought to be able to ask a question and not feel like you're going to get your head cut off. Are you hearing me this morning? At the same time, the scripture still says, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. Now, I believe the way that you conduct yourself with the Lord's anointed is the issue of respect and honor. There's a right way to ask anybody any question. There's a right way to question anybody's authority. There's a right way to, in a godly sense, challenge a decision that somebody's made that you've disagreed with. There's a right way to say, I love you and I respect the office that you're in, Pastor Michael, but you offended me and I can't get past it. We need to sit down and talk. And, and that's where we bring in another brother that's neutral and that's going to say, you know what, Pastor, I think these people have a case here. This is something we should work through. And then that's when I say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. If it wasn't intentional, then I, but, but if something that I did, then I'll loan up to it. There needs to be accountability in every member of the body of Christ. Come on, somebody. Y'all don't shout me down this morning. But because I have never gotten up and wielded that kind of manipulation or intimidation doesn't mean that we should be hanging out on the other end of the extreme where we just disrespect and criticize and go have me for lunch or Pastor Jeremy or Pastor Haley or anybody else or just yank, 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 just <laughs> grumbling and gossiping. You know, there's a place in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, where the people just grumbled and God opened up the ground and swallowed thousands of them. There's a couple times I've said, God, do you think you could do that just for a couple of folks? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I have thought it. Because some folks, no matter what you do, they're going to complain about everything you do. Can't do anything right. Well, I want to lay hands suddenly on you. Now, y'all are still laughing this morning, but how many of you know there's a right way, there's a right way to complain even. My, my goodness, pray over it and come in a right spirit and go, you know, you know there, there, were, there was a complaint that was brought in Acts 6 because the Greek widows felt like they were being racially avoided. They weren't being taken care of. And so the church responds. They didn't, they didn't get in a, a tongue wagging, finger striking, accusational fight and split the church and tear everybody up. They said, no, let's, let's fix this problem. Let's get some deacons and let's make sure these sisters make sure they're taken care of. But they handled it the right way. Wouldn't it God that the church could grow up and quit acting like junior high kids? Come on, somebody. Quit mean girling each other. Get mad at the pastor and get on the phone and strike up the war drum committee. We're going to drive him out. Let's call a congregational vote and kick him out of town. There are churches around here that do that about every 12 or 18 months. I'll leave that alone. Don't shout me down. You know some of them. Are you hearing me? So that there's a difference. 
We don't want anybody manipulating or intimidating people. At the same time, the Bible does still say, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. So let's honor and respect those that are in a place of leadership. Matter of fact, let me go a step further. I'm not asking you to respect or honor me any more than I'm asking you to respect and love and honor each other. What if the body of Christ actually did that? What if we really loved each other we didn't get on the phone and talk about Sister Bottle Stopper or Brother, brother All Jacked Up or whatever he did last week. Are you, are you hearing me this morning? And, and, we, and we really did, when we have a problem with somebody, we, we, we don't go tell everybody else, but we go talk to the one person that we have a problem with. My, 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 how the body of Christ could actually grow up and really change the world around us. Because the world's watching. Are you hearing me this morning? I hope you've gotten something out of this message I don't have time to, to take the rest of the chapter and do David's lament because he's, he's weeping. He's crying out to God because he loves Saul. In the, and even how bad Saul had done him, he still loved Saul. And he loved Jonathan as his own brother. Matter of fact, he said that his love for, for Jonathan was, was beyond even the love of women. And, 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 and I don't believe in any kind of way that was a perverse I don't think it was a homosexual illusion in the Scripture. I think there was just a bond of true brotherhood love that was there that he knew that come hell or high water, Jonathan had his back. Would to God, would to God that brothers and sisters in the body of Christ could know they had that kind of love from each other, that we would stand together instead of when our brother misses it, we go shoot him. Or they're already wounded from the enemy because they slipped and fell into temptation or sin and we just go ahead and take the sword and hack their head off and finish it. Cut off every bit of influence that they've got. God, help us, help us, help us, Jesus. As we open up this new exciting time because David's headed to the throne now and the excitement follows and the problems start in just leading the people of God. So this morning I want to say to you right now, no matter where you are, whatever circumstance you are facing, the deal, the struggle, maybe you've had a loss, you're grieving, lost a loved one, a friend, a relative. There's a struggle that you're having right now that you've, you, did, you failed to take out all the babies. You killed the big habit, but there's a couple of them that are little secret sins that are still lurking around. I want to say to you right now, please don't let that little thing live. Kill it. Kill that little Amalekite in your life. I'm not talking about people groups. We're not in any kind of way advocating violence naturally or literally to anybody. I'm talking about wreaking violence in your emotional, spiritual life where you deal with sin. You kill a habit. You kill a destructive pattern. That's, that's If you keep doing it, that little snake in your garden in, in the book of Genesis grows up to be a dragon in the book of Revelation. That little bitty, sweet, big-eyed Amalekite little sin that you're hiding will grow up and become a young man that can wield a spear and he will cut your head off. Amalekites are a type of the flesh. Sin in our own hearts and our own lives. God, help us. Not a perfect person in this room. But we're all called to keep our hearts clear. Confess our sin to the Lord not be dragged into any kind of recurring, repeating, habitual kind of destructive pattern of behavior. Jesus is bigger than that. He died so you don't have to live that way. Let me just say to you right now, 
He's throwing his arms of faithfulness and mercy. His faithfulness is great and his mercies are new today for you. He's saying, I love you just like you are. But when you really let him get his arms of love all the way around you, he will never leave you like you are. He will change you. He will transform you. He will set you free. Heads bowed, nice closed.